Hi and hello, watch fans. Welcome to episode 57 of Fratello On Air. I am once again joined by my good friend Giles Ellis of Schofield Watch Company. He's the owner, founder, chief designer, head coffee maker, and recently appointed shopkeeper of the brand. Today we'll be talking about some of Schofield's products in a little more detail and what we can expect to see in the near future. Welcome, Giles. Tell us, what have you been up to? Hi, Rob. Thank you again um, so much. I've been so busy. Okay, so starting 2021, uh, what, what's going on? So we're still kind of reveling in the newness of the Strange Lights watch, which you have featured before. Uh, there are some of those left, and uh, we continue to make those and, and keep a stock of those. Love that watch. And that actually is part of a new range and a slightly new way of thinking about the Schofield products from a continuity point of view. So with the strange lights, uh, to full titanium case, full titanium case back, uh, case back engravings, as you'd expect to see from the brand. But also now we have a little engraving on the side of the case, and that falls in line with products like the UV1 torch and the TL1 tritium light. Uh, the pen, of course, has some engraving on it, all in the same style, same size. Um, so we're starting to see kind of a more cont- continuous uh, design language move through Schofield. Previously to now, I have steered away from that because I get very excited about various uh uh, various ideas that I may have come across or, or various trends even. And so you tend to go with those and become a little bit more flippant. I mean, I must be on my fifth logo, right? I mean, that's a big no-no in branding, but uh, I, I don't care. I do it because I love it. Uh, and I'm happy to change uh, w- w- those to suit myself, to suit my own style. But as I get older in the business and as uh, Schofield kind of is seated within the industry, some of these elements stay stuck um, simply because there is no need for me to rework them because they've reached a point where they no longer follow a fashion trend or uh, any kind of stylistic um, trends so that they can stay stuck in a way that is uh, totally justifiable. And what I mean by that is that they've reached They've reached a point because I I had to have gone through all the other variants to get to that stage. And so it stays stuck because of everything that's happened before to it. Uh, The logo is a great example of that. The SWC with a little dot. uh, It's an unusual logo in that respect. And that was based off uh, doing rotor designs, actually. And the dot is the central pivot, the bearing for the rotor. So it came from that motif. Um, Playing with the fonts for that, they've been custom drawn essentially for all of this kind of stuff. I take that very seriously is making everything unique as I, as I possibly can. Um, and other design elements like the flutes that we use. I've always loved flutes, by the way. And I realized this, I was wondering why I love flutes. Flutes are not the same as ribs, right? Ribs run round and round uh, a cylinder and flutes would run longitudinally. And I love flutes. I remember an MP3 player. I had decades ago had flutes it was beautiful an mp3 player sorry an mp3 player with flutes yes it was a it was a a cool tiny little extruded aluminium shell to the mp3 player with a tiny little digital uh screen on it a few little buttons um and uh, the whole thing because it was extruded was fluted 
but it's incredibly tactile surface. And interestingly, a few weeks ago, I found a website called Lover of Everything Fluted. And it was somebody who says it's the thing that you can love fluted things. I am that person. I love fluted I had no idea that there was such a, uh, a niche market for fluted things. I didn't know it was something that one could really like claim to like as a thing. I mean, I like flutes. But... Yeah, okay. So a fluted wine glass, a fluted uh, whiskey glass, and then you've got fluted glass itself. And you would go for fluted vases, a fluted candle. It's this extra machining process of a flute that's really interesting because it can't be done on a conventional lathe, all right? Because a lathe, you'd do rips, right? Because it's running in uh, around the circumference of a, a cylinder or anything sure, turned. Sure, sure. Well, that would be the ribs, but flutes are much harder to do, okay? Because you've got to calculate how many you can get round a circumference of a cylinder, um, and it needs a very different machine to be able to do that. So it tends to be expensive to put flutes in, unless you're extruding, but more expensive certainly is for my stuff. Um, but it comes back down to tactility. And that tactility uh, in the product, so I'm going off off course here. I'll, I'll come back in a second to uh, what we're actually doing. That tactility comes from feedback from Schofield Watch owners. And I may have mentioned it before, but they fall into two camps generally. And there'll be the guys that run their thumb around the bezel because our crystal is set below the lip of the bezel. So if you ran your nail across the crystal, it would click as it goes over the bezel. It's not very big distance, but it's enough to bring a tactility to the, to the watch itself. And the other is our case shape, which is quite well known now. It's this, uh, it's wider at the base than it is at the top. So it has a, a heavier footprint than it does to its dial size. So it doesn't look like an oversized watch, but wears as a large watch and wears comfortably for it. But that side of the case shape, again, is another place to kind of rub your thumb backwards and forwards. And guys tend to habitually do one or the other. And I love the idea of uh, playing with tactility for an object, essentially, that you're touching or it is going to be strapped to your wrist, right? So is there any uh, is there any connection to this idea of tactility and the, the decision to engrave the sides of the cases with the codes as you have done in, in the case of yeah. the strange price? So the pen was exactly that. The pe a pen you hold, okay, obviously, and it's a stick that you write with. So there's very little you can do with it before you go so far away from its basic core need to exist that the thing would become wacky. I mean, you could make it huge, you could make it tiny, you could make it bent and curved. So being creative within those confines of a stick you write with is really hard, which is why it took me so long to get the, uh, the, the pen together. I mean, I've always said exactly the same thing about watchmaking. I think that is the joy of a challenge to me. You, you can't go too far before you become, like you say, wacky or deliberately and unappealingly eccentric. So to focus on tactility is a really interesting thing. I've talked recently about the textures on dials and how I think they'll be very important in the future, maybe more so than colors, but taking it to the outside, to the case as well. That's, that's interesting stuff. Absolutely. And it's something that we have always found great joy in bringing all of the aspects of, of an interaction with an object together. Why leave something out? I mean, why not play with texture? Why not play with highlights and shadows in ways that give a, an object much more depth so texture we'll play in many ways and, and have done. Of course, we had the carbon fiber watch, the mortar watch, 
the signalman, it's difficult to describe on a podcast, but the nature of the case, because the internal angles are so sharp, they're not machined. It has to be made from separate component parts that slot together so that we didn't have internal radiuses to that case. Mm-hmm. So it had a tactility like no other watch case because of the complexity of the, ma- of the way we made it. And then the beta, um, we did three different materials and they all had their own surface treatments. And so the titanium one was fairly coarsely bead blast and then heat treated. So it became blue, more or less light to dark blue, uh, had a great color. It had a great uh, um, sh- a shiftiness because of its metallic nature. Um, but also that texture, that heat treated titanium that's been coarsely bead blast is extraordinary. There's nothing like it. I it's very find it. I always find it completely remarkable. I love it. And uh, it was, the, I think, for me, the most compelling of the three original beaters, although you said in your mind it was maybe the least uh, appropriate for the concept because of the material. It wasn't the sort of rugged um, daily wear that the beater should have been. How did that material wear? Did the surface treatment come off easily? Did it wear away? No, actually. And we, I still see pictures of it. Um, we haven't seen one. I haven't had one here for, for years, but uh, customers send their pictures in. And um, what happens is it, it marks. And so you'll go through the blue to the substrate. Uh, the blue is only so deep because it's an oxide coating, essentially. And so it's gray underneath. So eventually, over time, the thing becomes less saturated as more gray, tiny marks come through. Oh, I see. So the, the, the substrate itself isn't so sufficiently different from the oxidized coating that it's not that it isn't noticeable, but that it also feels a little bit more comfortable than you would say if you took a uh, heat blued polished steel screw and then you know scratched it you'd see this bright flash of silver against a royal blue it's completely different right absolutely uh, that contrast actually between substrate and coating is important uh, when you're making watches because you ideally don't want that ideally you want a ceramic watch which is the same color all the way through okay ceramic so it doesn't scratch or it's very hard to scratch but that color is through and through so finding materials that are colored through and through is very demanding in the watch industry, especially when it's black. Okay. So what we did with the beta was interesting because the color of the beta heat treatment was enough to give it a deep and heavy oxide coating that persists, but the substrate will still oxidize to be of a similar tone. Uh, so it won't flash at you bright silver as if it was a stainless steel watch. It's dark gray enough and oxide and, uh, and and sorry oxidizes quickly enough that you're not left with a horrible contrast on the case. So over the years, it just becomes slightly desaturated around the bezel, but actually has lasted um, uh, very well. A case I don't make anymore because the QC factor for that case was particularly high because you're uh, heat treating it to uh, 500 degrees. Um, which means that you run the risk of distortion. So the way we cooled it was difficult. We actually air-cooled it very slowly in, in, a, in a warm environment just to bring it back down to room temperature uh, slowly. Uh, we couldn't plunge or do anything like that because it caused too much case distortion, so much so that we couldn't even get crystals in. Right. So it, it really is a very delicate process. Uh, and another good reason for us to stop making it because, of course, the cost associated with that was astronomical. Yeah, I mean, it was always, it always looked like a, an incredibly technical watch and very unusual piece. Um, I would love to get my hands on one of those old, old cases and take, to be honest, wire wool to the exterior to sort of deliberately 
uh, pre-Egypt. We've seen this trend um, emerging now, maybe a few years too late for the beta to really capitalize upon it, but we see it with um, bronze patination being um, artificially stripped back to leave a certain desirable kind of uh, aging and wearing. And also, I mean, the, the model that comes to mind to me is that all metal G-Shock that was recently produced pre-battered. You know, it, it looked like it was the it was a watch equivalent of distressed jeans, and it isn't mm. entirely new at all. But it was just the most recent, the most visible one that popped to mind. And I wondered what would happen if we took that case, that that blue titanium case that was such an outlier within the Schofield collection itself and the whole industry, and then handed it over to an ager, someone to to uh, wear away the edges and to give it that uniform uh, and graceful patina, if you will. That, for me, okay, takes away a little bit of the nature of patination. Yeah, me too. Okay. I agree. I think so, it's odd. I think it's a very odd thing to do. I think the joy in patination, the joy in wear, is the fact that you're responsible for it and your relationship with the watch. Absolutely right. So I feel that patination was where the beta came from. That was the whole point. So the titanium watch we spoke about, it was blued. I processed the surface, yet because the substrate was gray, it would patinate. Okay. That surface treatment would change over time, which we saw was done perfectly. The steel one was a bit different because the steel one, we created what we called a satinated finish. And this is all schoolboy stuff in my workshop, playing with materials, kilns, bead blasters, <laughs> right? all the fun stuff. But the satinated finish was uh, such that we, uh, I have a, a, essentially a bead blaster that you can do different media. So we use very coarse and a, and a, and a moderately fine. We found that if I uh, bead blast with very, very coarse at quite high pressure, Okay, we're up to six PSI here. You can affect metal down at 1.5 PSI with a coarse grit. I mean, you'll, you'll get a mark on steel. Six PSI slamming it pretty hard. And interestingly, when you do titanium with that, it sparks like mad. Things wow. like, it's cool. But with steel, you, you, we did this coating and it's so coarse, it looks like concrete. And that's why we called it the brutalist finish, mm-hmm. which we made a number of watches, custom watches for customers in this brutalist finish because it looked like concrete. And because those craters were so deep, grease would get stuck in them. So it would get dirty and look like dirty concrete. And talking about tactility, this was a surface that was so industrial, nobody in the watch industry had done it before. So not only have we done blue titanium, surely that's got to be one of the first times in the watch industry, if I can toot toot blow my own trumpet, but the satinated steel is there as well, because in the process of getting to satinated steel, we'd found a brutalist finish, this heavy industrial coating, not fine, not fine watchmaking by any stretch of the imagination way beyond any frosting it was really super coarse and i'm pretty sure that's got to be the first and we still do that finish on requests for customers so brutally we talked we talked momentarily about ceramic there as a solid material if you want something that's colored from top to bottom all the way through but you have used ceramic coatings quite extensively um on steel cases right and also on buckles so tell me about those and tell me about why you decided to use ceramic um we use ceramic because we were forced to. We were forced to because the DLC coaters had upped their minimum order. 
And decoders that we were using to re-DLC the Sigmund DLC when guys had gone right through that coating to the substrate. The substrate is stainless steel. Now, DLC is an amazing coating, right? And it looks really good. And if you wear your watches lightly, it's a good watch. It's a good coating to choose. If you wear your watches hard, then it's an appalling choice because you will go through the coating to the substrate underneath. That's what we've always said about DLC is it's for those that are very delicate with their watches. Then it stays looking new forever, okay, um, because it can resist mild scratching. But if you stove in the edge of the bezel, then you will lose the lose the integrity of that coating. However elastic they try and sell it to be, it's not in that situation. Because the issue with these fancy coatings is, yes, they're harder uh, than the substrate, but that doesn't sub stop the substrate from uh, from bending and buckling uh, if you bash it against a turnstile, you know. So uh, they up their minimum orders to something ridiculous. It was like 300 watches in one go, which was more than the production of our entire line of Signum and DLC. Wow. We were forced to stop DLC. Now, there were other suppliers out there, but while I was researching the subject, I met a guy locally that was doing ceramic coatings. Now, these ceramic coatings are uh, American gun coatings. That's where that comes from, that technology. But the guy I had met, fairly local to me, he uh, is uh, into Seiko mods. So he was a watch guy already. And also he had a facility that was big enough to do lots of motorcycle parts, which is predominantly his work, is coating exhausts um, and other bits and pieces. But because he was a watch guy, he was able to apply a jewelry-like finish to our products. That's the hard thing. So you can get other people doing ceramic watch coatings, but whether they can do it in a flawless manner, as you'd expect from DLCing inside a DLC chamber, was really hard to do. This guy could do it because he had that heritage. He had the filters, very fine filters to use on his spray guns. It's a spray finish, and then it's oven baked, essentially. The thing that gets me most about ceramic coating, and what I'd like to know more about is, how do you go about masking off all of those essential bits, you know, like you don't want to ceramic coat the interior of the bezel or the case, surely, or the threads for the crown or the holes for the crown tube, whatever. So we mask those uh, on the Daymark Dark, which is the watch that we ceramic coat. They're all masked and they'll be masked with anything from blue tack, wax to specially made masking uh, components. Uh, for the case, we use uh, for the case back. We use a case back to seal the watch. We press a, a tiny crystal into that area, and we'll use a special little uh, thing we made for the crown uh, that he plugs over the crown to protect the pendant tubes. The pendant tubes already in, and keep that entirely masked off for us, so nothing gets inside the case. Uh, and it's perfect. It's an absolute flawless finish, and also it's thicker. Uh, it's thicker enough uh, that you won't notice any dimensional changes as such. But what it does mean is it gives this coating more integrity, which means being thicker, it's less likely to stove if you crack it against something. DLC is incredibly thin. Um, also, I believe it to be much harder. We have found way better wear properties on uh, ceramic coatings than we have ever with DLC. We've used top DLCs and uh, PVDs before. The ceramic, I much prefer. Um I've seen ceramic buckles, and a buckle gets a lot of wear because it's wrist down on a desk, so it gets chipped and knocked all the time. They barely wear at all. We see them back with guys coming in, showing off their Schofields, and their red ceramic buckles look amazing. And that's my choice, a, a red or an orange ceramic buckle. It doesn't need to match the watch because it's on the other side of your wrist. Um, 
So, for example, if I was to wear a watch, say, like the Telemark, uh, white dial, grey case on a grey strap with a red buckle, and that is magical. I think I think that combination is a real winner because the Telemark is so uh, neutral as a, as a watch design, and the most yeah. the most neutral perhaps you've ever done, really. Because I look at your watches and I think. Um, the buckles really are an opportunity for wearers to express themselves. There's a little bit of flair. There's a little bit of uh, um, not color coordination, quite the opposite. And that's exciting. That could coordinate with maybe the rest of your outfit or something, a special pair of shoes or whatever it is that you like. Normally, I would be all for matching buckles and cases. I've, I've spoken extensively in the past how I much prefer bronze cases to be matched with a bronze buckle. But it's interesting that you see like the watch as... Uh, as more of a dynamic object, something that you can really change and modify with a different strap. You know, I'm I'm sure you have customers that maybe use one, like the tail end of a strap from one strap option and the head end of a strap for another strap option with a different colored buckle and blah, 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 all that kind of thing. My favorite thing that you've ceramic coated, however, is not the buckles at all. It was the swamp thing. That was a, an old beta limited run you did, right? Did you tell us about that one? Okay, so that's right. We did the Swamp Thing was a uh, a dial that we had, uh, I had made, but it came out too close to the Daymark colors. So I never launched it officially as, it was a green dial. It never launched it as a watch. I was going to make a little limited run of these watches uh, at the time, uh, but decided not to because it was too close to the Daymark. And I love these muddy colors and I've used the same palette since the beginning. Um it was a cool dial. And I was like, well, how can I really make this into something interesting? So we put it in a green ceramic coated uh, steel beta case uh, and called it the Swamp Thing. And uh, it was really cool. And it was a, a limited run and they all sold. Um, I do have a couple of those dials left, actually. And occasionally they do go into cases, but we haven't made any more Swamp Things since, since the original Swamp Thing watch. But that's exactly it. The ceramic coatings, they come in colors. And people get very excited about the ceramic coatings because they want white, okay? They want it to look like a tooth. Mm -hmm. um, and the white is awful because it yellows over time. So it ends up looking like a nicotine-stained or coffee-stained tooth. It's not pleasant at all. So the bright colors don't work, which is why the military colors work really well. Uh, we did a ceramic-coated bronze buckle, still do, and that is sometimes offered with the bronze watches because it's as close as possible to the bronze. I have a slightly funny thing about bronze buckles. I don't think there is nice generally as a bronze case. A bronze case is an elevated thing, whereas a bronze buckle feels to me like a cheaper product. Interesting. Um, so we don't make a bronze buckle, but also I used to always and traditionally match the buckles to the crowns of the watches because our crowns are always different to our cases. Which, you know, that's a very clever design decision to have made to get around that question of the buckle, because then if you have a effectively a bicolor case with a different colored crown, then the buckle matches. It's, it makes perfect sense. Also, the case backs are steel. Uh, the screw, uh, strap bars are steel. So you see those screw heads in the lugs. So the steel element is always an element that's going to be matched throughout that, that whole object. Um, I didn't finish talking, telling you about satinated steel and textures. So the satinated steel was the brutalist finish, but then we did a very fine surface treatment to it and found actually it gave us a, a, a final product that was different to if we had just done the fine treatment on its own. Oh, fascinating. Core bead blast and um, a very fine bead blast, and the result you get is not the same as the fine bead blast. It's somewhere in between. 
And then we'd burnish that back and put scratches on it deliberately. And it gave us a, a, a satin feel. It was the most lovely um handmade type finish but it had a real luster to it it was shinier than than the bead blast would give you it had highlights and so it's through these experiments that we ended up with a blue titanium watch a satinated steel and then of course the first bronze watch now i don't know if we were the first company ever to do a patinated bronze watch because the first bronze watches were always about uh it, incurring your own patination upon the metal. But I wanted to force patinate the watch by chemically treating it so that it was already further down the line uh, and offered more stability in the color. And that's why we still do the patinated watch. It's a real art to patination. And I have this a beautiful and amazing book called The Art of Patination. And it basically shows you loads of swatches of various metals and chemical recipes to get to that point. You're joking. So, yeah. So when I discovered that book, you can imagine that was like, okay, I need vats of this, tubs of that, and uh, let's let's go to town. So I wanted a patinated uh, watch that would be similar to what happens when you wear the raw for a year. Mm-hmm. So you wear the raw for a year, it's going to oxidize and become more like the patinated bronze. The patinated bronze softens because if you wear a cuff, then you end up polishing the bezel. Okay, so it tends to take on these brighter forms according to you. Just because it's patinated doesn't mean it's the end of the road for that. It changes enormously over time, uh, but in less dramatic ways as the raw would do. So that leads me to uh, the fact that we talked about tactility, because all of those surfaces are so tactile. You want to hold them and feel them. The patinated bronze feels different to the raw bronze. The raw bronze, I used to uh, bead blast in order to encourage. Um, surface area which would make it more reactive but what we did was we changed to a more reactive bronze so the chemical makeup of our bronze is different to those used by others in the watch industry ours is more reactive and because of that it oxidizes quicker so the raw comes to you blotchy because the watchmaker or myself may have put a fingerprint on it and that will show part of that process they don't come super bright and clean uh, like other raw watches do so that tactility right is uh, oh sorry now we don't be blast those watches because it's more reactive bronze and so i left them raw because as over the years we've refined the machining process and i used to bead blast to hide machining marks that's typically these surface treatments will do that but the machining marks in the raw bronze beta are so fine that they look like fingerprints. And so if you look over the corner of the lugs very carefully, you can see these incredible ripples. Uh, and I love that. So I'm like, I don't want to hide that. I want to keep that. And that increases surface area anyway. And so that's why we stayed with the, rom, uh, the raw bronze uh, in that fashion. So bringing us to new products, it was a new bronze beta. Okay. Now the new bronze beta called the B4 Japanese edition had to be because my love of patination is quintessentially Japanese. The Japanese call patination the grease of life. Okay. They don't polish it away. The Japanese are the cleanest of peoples, right? But at the same time, they're happy to have patinated and rust and those kind of uh, life and time related treatments on metal in a way that is incredibly beautiful. I can't ignore that. That's, that's stunning. It's us that have an obsession with polishing all of our brass and silverware, right? 
So the Japanese edition is patinated uh, much darker. I leave it in its chemical bath, essentially. It's in fact a double dip, um, but it's left in the chemical uh, bath much longer to create as thicker, dark patination as I possibly can on the bronze that we use. And the coating comes out so dark, sometimes almost black, but with a purpley hue to it. So it's really beautiful. But what I don't do is burnish it back. So the new forthcoming B2B4 Japanese edition is very dark case. I'm not going to do a raw version. When can we expect to see the B4? End of this year. Okay. Now, I'll tell you a secret. I have them. They're done. They're beautiful. They're done in, in, in entirety, the whole project. Okay. But I don't want to launch it now because it uses the same dial and hands as the strange lights. And I don't want to deter from strange lights by launching a watch that has a similar topography. Do you want me to leave okay. this into in the podcast or should I remove this? You can. That's fine. Because it's kind of exciting. And yes, I have sold a couple because when people come and visit me, they've seen it and they're like, okay, I need that. That looks pretty cool. Okay. We only have, we only have a minute or two left, but just give me a little teaser about the dial. Come on. The dial is uh, color picked from uh, Japanese uh, peasant cloth borrow, which is this uh, cloth made of stitched together older bits of indigo dyed cloth. And I wanted to represent indigo. And I did that with the colors on the new beta dial. So it's a bit paler, okay, like a well-worn pair of proper indigo jeans. And those that remember the story of the black lamp, the colors on the dial were a representation of a UV light. Now, you can't articulate UV light with one color. It had to be articulated with three colors. There was a blue, a violet, and a purple. They were the way to be able to indicate UV, and that was part of the whole Black Lamp story. It made sense at the time. Um, but certainly with this indigo, it was like, how can I represent indigo? So choosing those colors and the colors of the loom were really important to get that across. Now, of course, we have proper indigo cloth straps. We have brown mud cloth straps that are all Japanese, where the fabric is left underground to take on the color of mud. Really cool and a great replacement for the tiger loaf straps that we can no longer make. Amazing. That's the beat. Yeah, Amazing. super cool. Amazing stuff. Um a beautiful concept, fully realized once again. Thanks for giving us a, a, a little sneak peek, uh, aud- audibly at least, if not visu- visually at the moment. Can't wait to see some more. Can't wait to learn more. Very excited to watch the Strange Lights collection um, sell out before we see the launch of the B4 because that is you know, still my number one, I think, of, of everything you've got in the catalog at the moment. Thank you for spending time with us once more. We'll check in with you soon, probably a couple of weeks from now, and uh, we can't wait to hear what's on the horizon and your thoughts on the rest of the industry. Thanks, Giles. Thanks, Rob. 